Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and researching the link between people who know Han shot first and people who believe Mike Krzyzewski sold his soul to the devil. I'm Ellie Jacobs, sailing solo while Frank Spring is away. I'd like to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play, or whatever other app you use. And please be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in proxy. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by our good friend Maggie Moore. Maggie is a storyteller and a strategic communicator who specializes in promoting women in traditionally male-dominated spaces. She is co-creator and associate director of We Cry Havoc, a collaboratively written play about women serving in combat in the U.S. Army. Maggie works with the RISE Team Activated Majority Initiative and was previously an organizer in North Carolina with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Before that, Maggie was the government outreach lead lead at Democracy Works and the Deputy Director of Leadership Development at the Truman National Security Project, of which Frank and I are both members. While at Truman, she started the No Exceptions campaign to support full combat inclusion for women in the armed forces. It'll be a great conversation, so please stick around for it. There's obviously a ton to talk about this week, from the Judiciary Committee hearing for Neil Gorsuch, to the health care bill, to the by-the-minute lunacy coming out of the White House, and oh yeah, we all may die in a nuclear holocaust started by North Korea. Bear in mind, I'm recording this Friday morning, so who knows what may happen by the time you actually listen to this. Without Frank to converse with, I just wanted to make a few points before bringing Maggie in. First, let's uh, look at the health care bill for a second. Again, with the big caveat that everything could be very different within just a few hours. I have a super strong suggestion for the Democrats. Take advantage of the chaos on the Republican side and do something to put some points on the board with the Trump voters who are currently super uncomfortable with the direction the health care bill is going in. Dem leaders are running to airports to join the spontaneous protests, but not leading the way telling people what is possible when what is not. Great, we're against Trump, Trump, Trump care. Excuse me, we're against Trump care. Terrific, you should be. The bill is atrocious. It's going to raise costs and cut people off, and the people who are going to be able to remain are going to get a lot less care. But why haven't Dems come up with something as a reaction to that? Everybody recognizes and admits that there are flaws with the ACA, as any sort of compromise legislation has, and people have real concerns that are getting that they are being impacted by the ACA as it currently exists. Hillary campaigned on making changes to the ACA. So why not acknowledge that the ACA isn't gospel and not above reproach, and that Ma and Baha Rust Belt do have a reason to be unhappy with it? It can't just be, hey, the GOP's bill sucks. They're going to take away your coverage. Fight with us. It needs to be, hey, their bill sucks. It's going to take away your coverage. going to cost you more. We want to do X, Y, and Z to the ACA, which will help you, not hurt you. Why hasn't the Dem- Democrat Party come out with, these are the f- simple fixes we want to make to the ACA that everybody can agree on that need to be done in the short term and as we, as we discuss a larger bill going forward. This isn't my alt-center part of my brain talking. This is just common sense. Show people who care about this issue and who are currently really uncomfortable and unhappy with the Republican Party, that the Democrats actually have solutions. There's also a really important lesson for everybody in here about ideological purity. Right now, it's looking like the Freedom Caucus that is all about ideological purity is going to be what kills this bill for the House. There's something really important for Democrats to recognize about that when we start looking at ideological purity as a be-all, end-all. You really need to kind of write this down Somewhere you're going to see it a lot, maybe tattoo it on your forehead. Ideological purity does not work in a participatory, multi-party, federal, multi-branch democracy like we have. 
it's great to, as we said in our alt center uh, episode, it's great to have people holding down the this the the far extremes um, in the Senate or in the House. You need people like that to keep everybody honest. But at the end of the day, the ideological purity argument never works, and it's never going to win. And it's not an issue of compromising or not compromising. It's a realistic, pra- principled, pragmatic response to actually get trying to get things done. You can't just believe that things are black and white. Everything is gray. doesn't mean everything is debatable, and you do have to put stakes in the ground. But there have to be opportunities where you can walk forward and say, you know, why the ideological purity issue comes up again with uh, the fact that the Democrats and Schumer are now very much threatening to filibuster Gorsuch. Uh, I think that this is incredibly dangerous. And the reasons for that are fairly simple. Right now, basically, the only thing Democrats have in government is the filibuster in the Senate. And it's already been uh, downgraded uh, by Harry Reid a few years ago so that uh Certain bills and some judges and some cabinet officials don't need a full 60 votes to break a filibuster. They can be approved with 51. The idea that the Democrats would risk losing any ability to prevent future Supreme Court justices from needing to be above the filibuster level is really scary. And I say that because right now the balance of the court is not going to change. Everybody sort of knows this right now. Gorsuch is out of the mold of Scalia, and that's fine. So you're still at a 5-4 court with Kennedy kind of floating in the middle. The average age of the folks on the court is out, is outlandishly high. Between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Kennedy, somebody's going to likely retire or you know, even worse, pass away within the next uh, during Trump's administration. And then you're looking at an cha- opportunity for them to really change the balance of the court. And if Democrats don't have the ability to filibuster that at that point, you're basically giving up that opportunity for nothing right now. And I worry that this is a response to the base's push for the Democrats to do something and fight things. And I'm concerned that the Democratic leadership have not taken the opportunity to take that kind of, again, principled, pragmatic stance and explain to people why it is so important that they reach a deal on this. I don't know that they necessarily need to filibuster it full out, but maybe leverage it to get something else leverage it to bring back the idea of being able to filibuster other positions that uh, Harry Reid had given up, as I just mentioned. Or let's see if we can get push for an independent commission. Say, hey, Mitch, Chuck should go say, hey, Mitch, we'll give you a straight vote on Neil Gorsuch, but we want an independent commission looking into Trump, and that's the trade right there. Or say to the finance to Orrin Hatch and the finance committee, say, great, we will uh, go ahead and do this vote, but we want you to, to uh, uh, get Trump's taxes for us to take a look at. There are opportunities here to horse trade for things that are much more useful than losing the opportunity, the single opportunity that Democrats have in the future to prevent the balance of the court from significantly changing. This is just my thoughts. Frank's not here to bounce back on the other direction, so you're all at a loss for that. You only get to listen to me sermonize this week. Uh, but stick with stick with me. I'll be uh, bringing Maggie more in, in just a few seconds. All right. Welcome back. I'm joined by Maggie Moore now. Maggie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So we like to start these uh, quick interviews off with just a simple question. Where are you? Why? How'd you get there? What are you doing now? That kind of stuff. Yeah, great question. Um, So currently I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, uh, but I haven't always lived on the East Coast. Um, Originally, I'm from Eugene, Oregon. 
And uh, I always knew, though, that I wanted to move to the East Coast. I was always interested in policy um, in high school and in college. So I moved to D.C. a week after I graduated from the University of Washington. Um, and that's where I started working at the Truman National Security Project, which is where you and I met uh, and so many others. And I spent three years uh, working in the leadership development department over there, um, organizing grass tops, as I like to, to call it, getting to know folks working in politics, policy, defense, um, and getting a lot more exposure to uh, different types of jobs that I never ordinarily would have had the opportunity to learn about, especially as a college student. Um, and then in 2015, I uh, got a different uh, opportunity uh, up in New York. So I made the big move um, to Brooklyn. I was working at an organization, a tech startup uh, called Democracy Works, um, and they are all about making voting fit the way that we live. Um, so I was working with uh, county clerks across the country to help them track their absentee or mail ballots through the USPS, um, since a couple million a year never get returned back for counting. Um, and if even a fraction of that was uh, because the USPS lost ballots, that's, uh, that's a lot of votes that aren't being counted. That's the actual conspiracy, not, not Russia. 100%, unless there are Russian plants in the post office that are looking to yeah. snatch ballots here and there. I'm pretty sure my post person is Russian. Never, uh, never mind. <laughs> How would we know, though? They're very sneaky. Yeah. Um, but after being with Democracy Works for, um, for a little over a year, I, I heard the call as it were. Um, so I quit my job and I sublet my apartment and I joined um, the Hillary for America team down in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, so I was organizing um, in Eastern Carolina for the last about three months of the campaign. Um, and uh, we all know how that turned out. <laughs> so I came, uh, came back to Brooklyn and I've mostly been freelancing, helping folks uh, on the projects that they're working on right now. Um, but also looking for ways that I can use that sort of organizing spirit to get back into the resistance as it has now been dubbed. Got it. Cool. All right. So uh, let's dive into a little bit uh, your experience in the Clinton campaign, because that's something that obviously Frank and I spent a lot of time talking about. And it'd be great to get your your uh, view kind of different from Bishop's being in HQ, uh, your view of being on the ground. So um Tell me a little bit about the experience in general. Where do you think things went wrong? And really importantly, what were you seeing on the ground that was different in North Carolina or the areas you were working that the campaign may have benefited from knowing better or recognizing? Sure. So I have never lived in the South before. Um, I've only ever lived in incredibly blue districts, Oregon, Seattle, DC, Brooklyn. So it was... It was both surprising and also not surprising at the same time. So the the county that we were in, Pitt County, um, is actually a pretty pale blue uh, swath of the state. Uh, I think when a lot of people think about North Carolina, they either think about you know Raleigh, the Research Triangle, um, or they think about um, you know incredibly conservative uh, parts of it. So HB two, uh, the governor's race, that kind of thing. Um, so when I was down there, a lot of what I saw was a very close and tight-knit group of Democrats who have been working really hard for a long time to make sure that North Carolina um, stayed blue as it went in 2008. And then in 2012, I think those wounds were still really present, uh, especially when you're talking to local uh, local Democrats um, and the, the local party. Um, 
What I was the most surprised by is that we didn't do any persuasion narrative outreach. Uh, we were only talking to um, Dems, likely likely Dems, uh, and mostly just going to friendly houses. Uh, and Greenville is a college town, ECU is there. Um, so it was a relatively liberal uh, place, but this election, I think brought out a entirely different perspective because there were so many people that did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton just because she was Hillary Clinton. Um, they maybe necessarily didn't support Trump, but they de definitely didn't want her. So those conversations on the doors were always really interesting. You walk up to a house that doesn't have any yard signs, but they still slam the door in your face because they can't right. stand to hear Hillary Clinton or Deborah Ross. Um, that race got particularly contentious. Um, so what, what would, what do you put that at? Just, general opposition built up over 25 years to Hillary Clinton? Was it the fact that she was a woman? Was it the fact, was it the email? Was like, what, was there something specific or was it just kind of everything combined? I think it was a little bit of everything. I think, I think it's a lot easier for people to get away with saying, I just don't like them. If it's, I just don't like her. Yeah. If it's a man that you're talking about, most people will expect you to come up with a specific policy reason as to why you don't agree with them. You can get away with saying, I don't have a good feeling about her. I don't trust her. And I think the reason why the emails and Benghazi especially stuck to her so much um, was because it enforced a deeper a deeper fear about her, um, which is the conspiracy and the secrecy of the Clinton family. Yeah. Um, so it mostly reinforced something that people already felt to be true uh, and gave them an out. And most people, you know, if you called them on the phone and they really didn't like Hillary, they'd you know, swear at you and hang up. Um, but there was just a lot of deep, deep ambivalence. Um, and we're talking, I was talking to neighborhoods where people just didn't really feel strongly one way or another. And I was most worried that they just wouldn't come out to vote at all. Mm, I don't really like Trump, but she's gives me a bad feeling. So I don't really know what I want to do. So maybe I just won't vote. And I think people were, especially HQ folks, were hoping for a lot more enthusiasm um, for Hillary, and that just wasn't there. But if you weren't using persuasion, persuasion messaging, what were they? What was HQ expecting people to get excited about? I don't really think we were expecting people to get excited about anything at all. Most of yeah. what we spent our times having conversations with people about, um, and this was particularly important in North Carolina, was to make sure that people understood the rules. So, when can you early vote? Is there Sunday voting in your county? Right. How do I register to vote? And what kind of ID do I need? That was really contentious in North Carolina for a while. So the vast, vast majority of our voter registration effort and GOTV effort was just making sure that people understood what they had to do, making it as clear as possible. Yeah. So the persuasion was mostly that you should vote early because um, Democrats, you know, vote early and often. Right. So getting people to get out and vote early was our biggest, biggest strategy. We needed to get, you know, we wanted to get at least 60% of our voters to the polls um, during early voting in North Carolina before that ended. But we weren't convincing people that they should be excited to vote for Hillary Clinton. And if you're not excited and you already don't understand uh, the early voting rules, then why would you go? Right. Do you know off the top of your head what the numbers of early voting was this year versus 08? So we, as a whole, I don't know what it would break down to party-wise, um, but there the early voting numbers in my area were higher than in 2008. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, which was which was incredibly exciting. And we were really proud of that work. Um, so in, in Pitt County, we were there was a bunch of counties um, that had higher returns in 2008. But and this is Republican, independent, Democrats, all right. of it, um, which is which was great. Um, so there, but in some counties, you know, they had 
like an eighth of the early voting locations that they had um, in 2012 and 2008 uh, because they wanted to change all of the rules. Yeah. I think I just saw a stat somewhere. There's something like 27 different states right now that have ongoing kind of ballot prevention initiatives going on, which is sort of astounding. It's really scary. Uh, the idea that we should make voting harder when it's already as complicated as it is now doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I, I think voting should be significantly easier than getting a driver's license at the DMV, but some states apparently don't think that. They disagree. And I come from an all vote by mail state. It's the easiest thing in the world. You can take your time. You can do it in your in your slippers and then you're done. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not everywhere is like that. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about all that. But I want to uh, dive into some of the stuff you're working on now. Um, sure. So in the intro, I mentioned that you're involved with this uh, play called We Cry Havoc. Um, tell me about that and kind of then talk about a little bit how that ties into your experience with the uh, No Exceptions campaign. Absolutely. Um, so We Cry Havoc is a, uh, uh, it's a devised piece, which means that the actors and any other creators uh, contribute to the script uh, about women serving in combat. And um, I've never worked on a theater piece before. I don't come from the arts world. Uh, but this was really born out of a lot of the work that I had done uh, at the Truman Project with the No Exceptions campaign um, in terms of getting the combat exclusion policy dropped. Uh, so the way that we started this project uh, was we, my uh, friend uh, is the, the director, and um, we gathered a cast um, at that time, I think it was six, and everyone conducted interviews with um, a veteran or a current service member uh, and asked them about their experience. We had a set list of questions uh, and the actors usually inter interviewed someone in their family uh, or a friend. Uh, Julia and myself, the director, interviewed uh, five or six folks individually. A lot of them were German members that contributed. Um, and that was really the jumping off point uh, for the script. Um, and we've uh, pulled direct stories that folks were kind enough to share with us, both men and women, um, from Vietnam to post 9-11 conflicts uh, to talk about their experiences in war so that we could bring it to the stage and tell stories um, of women that have never really been told before. Because uh, when you think about how pop culture explores war, it's usually in film, uh, mostly movies, and it's always about men. Um, and we thought that we could um, highlight highlight important stories in a timely manner. Because uh, at that time, when we originally started working on it, the combat exclusion policy uh, was still in place. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about the no exclusion? Uh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> no exceptions campaign? Sure. Um, so the no exceptions campaign got started um, actually out of a very small project, uh, which was that at the time, the Truman Project didn't classify any of our members in our database by gender. Uh, so I just went through with some interns and started tagging every member by their gender to see what our breakdown was. And nationwide, about two years ago, we were only maybe sub 25% female. I think it was about 22%. And that was scary. Um, so when we when I took this gender breakdown across the programs, um, I took it to a group of women that came to, came to HQ to talk about it and asked them what they wanted to work on. Um, I didn't want to tell them what they wanted to work on. So then what percolated up to the top uh, was we should take the resources that we have, both male and female, um, civilian and veteran, and uh, advocate for uh, women being allowed to serve in combat. Um, and these are women who contributed to the project, like Katie Van Dam, Kristen Hyduke, uh, Lynn Leeper, and uh, Mary Kate Cunningham uh, really took it and owned it and ran with it. And um, were able to speak to, I mean, Katie Van Dam specifically was able to speak to what she was able to contribute um, as a helicopter pilot, 
uh, in combat. So uh, we then started pulling resources from the Truman community, figuring out what it should be called, um, what our strategy should be. Bishop Garrison was also involved and was instrumental in helping us map out uh, the Pentagon, who should we talk to. Um, and they continued to carry the work on then even after I left Truman, so that when right. Ash Carter announced in December um, that uh, women should be allowed to serve uh, in combat positions, no exception, I don't think that him saying that was you know, right. a coincidence at all. Right. It's, it's, the little, it's little inclusions that are the big victories. Exactly. Little inclusion of a sentence, not little inclusion of women in combat units. <laughs> An important distinction, yeah, I think. Very important distinction. <laughs> Um, and where does kind of the no exceptions idea land now? Is there still pushback in the military? Is there a possibility Mattis reverses it or con Congress forces him to re reverse it? Unfortunately, it's included in the Republican platform that women should not be allowed to serve in combat, which is which is scary. And I think that that speaks to a larger fear that a lot of women and minorities have with the Trump administration is, are we going to lose the things that we that we fought so hard to get? Uh, I think there's still a long, long, long way to go in terms of combat integration and having women actually be viewed equally in the hearts and minds of service members. I mean, look at Marines United, yeah, um, the, the photo sharing scandal that absolutely exploded. They think that they can do that because they don't view women as their equals. Right. Um, and uh, Kate Germano, who's now working with the Service Women's Action Network, um, actually lost her job. Uh, with the Marines when talking about how to make women be viewed as more equal, which means they should be trained uh, from the beginning, once they land at Paris Island, together. Um, and they should be held to higher standards, women should be, uh, and they're not. Um, the, se the sexes are separated right as you get off the bus, um, which makes it then easy to believe that women get uh, an easier shake of things, um, that they're weaker, um, that they're less than. So putting women into the combat roles that they've already been serving in for a long time uh, is a good first step, but there's a long way to go in terms of making um, female Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen feel and be treated uh, as equal. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings into what I want to talk about some of the stuff going on now um, in the Trump administration. So there's a lot of this view that it's an old boys club and it, who boy, it is that around Trump um, with the, significant exceptions being uh, Kellyanne Conway and his daughter Ivanka Trump, who uh, is now going to be taking the office that apparently has been secretly left aside for her for the last two months. But first she's in Aspen with Jared during, you know, kind of a big week for the administration for Jared to take off, but you know, who cares? So a couple questions with this, and you can take these in any, any order or any direction you want. What are kind of the, not to use a the term pejoratively, but what's the activist's view of Kellyanne and Ivanka? Um, and how is the, what the role they're playing both internally and more importantly, externally, how's that shaking out in terms of policy development or, you know, everybody made a big deal of Ivanka's speech at the uh, RNC at the uh, convention uh, where she pushed for family leave and all kinds of other things. And uh, a very enterprising reporter from the Washington post uh, spoke to some people at G3, which is the licensor, license holder that makes uh, Ivanka's clothing where my, my wife used to work and actually got called by the reporter. Um, but it, where does this kind of all shake out in terms of the way they're viewed and what's actually happening, not happening? Does it help hurt the, the cause writ large or are there specific issues that you actually see working out? I think what's important to remember is that we do spend a lot of time and maybe rightfully so, looking at women like Kellyanne Conway and Ivanka Trump and 
worrying about or applauding them for being the only women that are involved. Not unlike how Trump likes to distract us with tweets. They are distracting by saying, you know, this is fine. I'm a woman and I approve of this. And then we talk about that instead of Ivanka's paid family leave policy is absolute garbage. And Kellyanne Conway is a liar. Um, I do think it is wasteful to punch. Yeah, but other than that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I do, I do think it's wasteful to, to punch down and talk about how Kellyanne Conway looks like Skeletor or looks like a majorette in her silly, admittedly silly, um, inauguration outfit. Those are distractions. Um, so what's important to, to remember is that Ivanka Trump is his daughter and she's getting a job for free because she has the luxury because she's so wealthy. She doesn't need to be paid on a government salary when her policy actually would give women and of her income bracket more of a tax break than the women who make her clothes. Right. And that's a problem. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so and this is kind of, we'll probably get back into this with this question, but something Frank and I have been talking about a lot, uh, both during the podcast and when we yell and scream at each other off the air, um, is this idea that kind of this newly active opposition, uh, people who necess not, weren't necessarily activists beforehand, weren't really particularly interested. I mean, just by the sheer numbers of people that are showing up and doing things is pretty indicative that there is a new class of people that are that are involved in, in want to be involved politically. And Frank and I kind of go back and forth on the idea that are, are, is the opposition as poorly organized as it may or may not be? Are they spread too thin? And if that is the case, what are the things that they should be focused on? And if that's not the case, that it's actually good to be focused on a whole broad range of things. How does that go? How do we go about getting that done? It's always nice to know that there are people who want to be involved and want to organize who have never done it before. We should always be excited to get more, more people on our side. The issue with the scattered nature of it becomes that we hunger for so much because we have so little. And that the, this, I think this is also true of, like the, of the Women's March in particular, where there were groups that were upset that it wasn't inclusive enough and that you know, pro-life women weren't going to be included and how big of a tent does everything need to be and including the biggest tent of all, the quote unquote resistance. Um, I don't necessarily know if there's ever going to be one unified front or group or channel of resistance that would be successful. A, a resistance movement can't be everything. If it's everything, if it's about everything, then it's functionally about nothing. Um, and I think that liberals are also really good at infighting, trying to make sure that we're all fighting about the same things. So I think what would be the most helpful is to not necessarily worry that we all have to be doing the same things at the same time. Um, but having groups that are particularly good at fighting for certain kinds of policy um, fight for that just one policy. We can't all be together all the time. Yeah. So I mean, in your mind, if you were in charge of it all, which you're not yet, but you know, maybe this podcast will propel Let's you in that it. direction. <laughs> what do you think those, I don't know, three or five things that really need to be focused on over and above kind of every little aspect should be? Oh boy, that's a big question. I mean, I- You can shrink the number. You can say, you know, one to three things. Right, well, I mean, for me, the biggest thing that I care about constantly all the time um, is, is 
not necessarily something like paid family leave, but I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about what is the gender angle on all of the policies that are being put forward. And because I'm really tired of having policies that punish me for being a woman. So I am always worried about, um, about women's equality and that gets boiled down to um, a number of policies. I think income inequality is an incredibly important thing for us to be focusing on on the domestic side. Um, and then I really, really worry about if the friends that I have will have to get deployed again. So having good soft power and good diplomacy is also then incredibly, incredibly important to me. Right. Um, and I, those are the things that we fought really hard for uh, that we might lose with right. this administration. Right, right. Okay, um, well, we're kind of up at the end of this uh, interview, but we always like to leave a little bit of a lightning round. So if you're ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I can do this. All right. So the first question we ask is, what's the best book, TV show, or movie you've read or seen lately? Who? Um, I know it's a little nerdy, um, but I've been really enjoying The Magicians. It's on sci-fi, and it's such a good break from uh, reading the news or looking at Twitter. It's total escapism. It's like an older version. It's like if Harry Potter went to grad school. So check it out. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, second question, what's your favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Ooh, also a tough one. Um, I I go back and forth between a nice Sauvignon Blanc and a very tasty Manhattan. Okay, that the, those both work. Um, that, I feel like that's a perfect encapsulation of my personality. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, <laughs> those people who know you will think that. Um, exactly. In the Trump era, as we were just saying, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's a single organization that you're active in and why? Um, single, single group that I'm, I have not uh, worked with them yet, but I encourage everyone to check out Surge, S-U-R-G, Standing Up for Racial Justice. They have chapters all across the country and their focus is to organize um, white folks. Uh, to be better allies uh, for people of color in their communities. That's a great organization. Um, and then finally, where can people follow you? On the Twitters or wherever else? On the Twitters, yes. Um, you can follow me at MaggieM012, um, in which I tweet about uh, feminism, theater, and gifts. And the magicians, apparently. And the magicians. It's a good show. Don't mock it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Maggie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Maggie, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Stars generously review us. You can do that the same thing on Stitcher, Google, SoundCloud, or any other app you're using. Importantly, follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in Pueblo in honor of Frank's excursion to the Southwest. Since I don't ship alone, you'll have to wait until next week for me and Frank to take ship to a new exotic location. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend.